Hello, this is Mike, and welcome to another episode of Urban Legends and Conspiracies. On today's episode, we will be discussing the infamous 27 Club. As a disclaimer, I would like to state that this episode does deal with topics of mental illness, drug addiction, alcoholism, suicide, and untimely death. So if you are uncomfortable with any of those subjects, I would suggest that maybe you skip this episode in light of a more upbeat one. Thank you. Now let's get back to the 27 Club. The 27 Club is an urban legend which is mostly associated with musicians. However, it's also associated with actors and other artists who die at the age of 27. While the claim of a statistical spike for the death of musicians and other artists at 27 has been disputed and claimed as cherry-picked data, it does stand to reason that there is something odd going on with the frequency at which we see artists dying at this young age. So in order to really understand this cultural phenomena, we really have to start in 1969 when four of the most famous musicians in the world all died within mere months of each other. Those artists being Brian Jones, one of the founders of the Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, one of the greatest guitar players of all time, Janis Joplin, and Jim Morrison, founder of The Doors. They all died at age 27 within months of each other. Now, most people would write this off as a coincidence and as a comment on the prolific drug use that was going on at the time in this industry. However, the coincidence did lead to some comment as to why all these artists had died at the age of 27. It just seems like one of those statistical anomalies that gets people talking. Now, while it is easy to just write these deaths off as a bunch of hedonistic rock stars dying of drug overdoses at a young age, I feel that really glosses over the issue. So I think it's best that we take a look at these four particular deaths in order to see if we can glean any commonalities which may link these deaths together other than just drug use. So let's start with Brian Jones, who is considered to be the first inductee into this infamous club. He was the founder of the Rolling Stones and a multi-talented musician and songwriter. He go on to start the band in 1962 along with Keith Richards and Mick Jagger, and they became a very successful songwriting team. And he would stay with the band until 1969. What had happened was Jones started to develop alcohol and drug problems, and his performance became so unreliable that the Stones decided that they were going to dismiss him. However, less than a month after he was dismissed from the band, he was found dead in his swimming pool on July 3rd, 1969, at the age of 27. His official cause of death was actually noted by the coroner as death by misadventure. It was also noted by the coroner that his liver and heart were greatly enlarged by past drug and alcohol abuse. Death by misadventure is something that a coroner will put on a death certificate, mostly in the UK, when there are contributing factors to an unnatural death such as drug use, an accident, or suicide. In this case, many people do believe it was some kind of associated drug use that did lead to his eventual drowning. He was known to overindulge in alcohol and other drugs, most notably marijuana. There's also allegations that he was doing cocaine and methamphetamine. A lot of people believe that it was the toll from days on the road, the pressures of money and fame, and the feeling of being alienated from the rest of the stones, which led him to this addictive behavior. It is even stated that excessive drug use would start to have a negative effect on his physical and mental health, and he would become unfriendly and antisocial at times. Hostility grew between Jones and the rest of the Stones. It was noted that he could be friendly and outgoing while also being cruel and difficult. Most people say that his attitude would change frequently. Quote, one minute he was caring and generous, the next he was making an effort to anger everyone. Another quote, there at least two sides to Brian's personality. One, Brian was introverted, shy, sensitive, deep thinking. 
the other was a preening peacock, gregarious, artistic, desperately needing assurance from his peers, end quote. He would push every friendship to the limit and way beyond. Now, I am in no way trained in psychology or psychiatry, but to me personally, that sounds a little bit like manic depression. There are no accounts, at least any accounts that I was able to find, that ever suggested that Brian Jones was mentally ill or manic depressed. I don't think that it's outside of the realm of possibility that he could have either suffered from something like manic depression or another type of mental illness. This was the 60s and that stuff just wasn't really diagnosed back then, not the way it is today. Most contemporary accounts attribute his mood swings to the illicit drug use. However, I think it does discount the mental state he was in at the time. We have to remember that this is a man in his 20s who has been thrust into rock stardom. He's a founding member of one of the most famous bands that was playing at the time. And between the pressures of fighting with his bandmates, being ultimately kicked out of his band, his mounting legal issues, then it's no surprise to me that his mental state had probably deteriorated to a point where he was seeking out more destructive behaviors, particularly the drug use. As an alcoholic myself, I know that drug use is the ultimate form of escapism from your problems. Sadly, these behaviors and his hedonistic rock star lifestyle would lead to his ultimate demise. His death would be shortly followed by another great musician, James Marshall Hendrix, also known as Jimi Hendrix, one of the greatest guitar players of the 20th century. Hendrix began playing guitar at a young age, and by 1961, he was playing gigs on the Chitlin circuit. He eventually would play with the Isley Brothers, and he would also play with Little Richard, and eventually he would go out on his own and create such great hits like Hey Joe, Purple Haze, The Wind Cry of Mary. By 1967, he had already had three UK top ten hits. He would be rocketed into US fame after his performance at the Monterey Pop Festival. By 1968, his final studio album, Electric Ladyland, reached number one in the U.S., and by 1969, he would be the headliner at Woodstock. And if you don't know what the Woodstock Festival was, ask your boomer parents or grandparents. Every one of them will have claimed that they were there. Now what made Hendrix so great was he really was one of the first guitarists to make extensive use of tone-altering effects like fuzz distortion, Octavia, wah-wah, stereophonic phasing, and using amp feedback to create some really awesome sound effects. He was really turning the electric guitar into an electronic instrument in its own right, which was something that we really didn't see in music up to this point. Up to this point, if you had distortion or amp feedback, it would be seen as ruining your song. But he took this and turned them into some really amazing sound effects that laid a lot of foundations for what would come in electronica, disco, etc, etc. Now it said that Hendrix's childhood was pretty far from ideal. His father was discharged from the army in 1945. However, he was unable to find steady work and the family was routinely impoverished. It is said that both parents did struggle with alcoholism and that they often fought when they were intoxicated. These fights would sometimes become so violent that it actually drove Hendrix to hide in a closet at times. Due to his father's inability to find steady work, they did bounce around from hotels and apartments all around Seattle. This would have a really negative effect on Hendrix, considering that he was a shy and sensitive boy, at least that's how contemporaries described him at the time. His parents did divorce when he was around nine years old and the court granted his father custody, which you can imagine would have taken a heavy toll on such a young child. See their alcoholic parents struggling, viciously fighting and arguing with each other, and then going through divorce. It doesn't take a genius or someone who's well-versed in psychology to realize that a traumatic childhood like that could lead to some severe psychological damage later in life. Not to mention the fact that his mother died of cirrhosis of the liver when he was 15. 
scene, and instead of allowing his children to attend their mother's funeral, their father, Al, gave them shots of whiskey and instructed them that this is how men should deal with loss. So it's no surprise to me that in his later teenage years, he would end up dropping out of high school and eventually be arrested for riding around in stolen cars, which led to the judge giving him the choice between joining the army or going to prison, which he chose the army. However, in the army, he didn't really care for it. He was actually discharged, frankly, because he actually showed no general interest in the army whatsoever. So not too long after his stint in the army is when his music career begins. Along with his increasing alcoholism and eventual drug use, sadly, just like his parents, his alcoholism would lead to bouts of anger and violence. One person was quoted as saying that liquor set off a bottled up anger, a destructive fury he almost never displayed otherwise. Which sounds like he probably did have a lot of pent up childhood anger that would come out while he was intoxicated. This was also around the time he started sporadically using drugs including cannabis, hashish, amphetamines, and cocaine. After 1967 he was regularly using these drugs, particularly amphetamines. It was said that he would frequently use amphetamines and stay up as long as three days at a time while touring so one could imagine the physical toll that that alone would have on the body these angry and violent fits would lead to eventual legal issues in various countries putting more stress and strain on an already stressful career path While rock stardom may sound like the dream job of most of us, it is actually just like any other job. It's fraught with meetings with lawyers and contract disputes and countless hours, endless days on the road, which can become monotonous and repetitive. On top of that, your songwriting, your practicing with your bandmates, it's a real go, go, go lifestyle. So it's no surprise that one would take amphetamines to stay awake for those countless hours you need to and then take sleeping pills to calm down which is actually what ended up killing him in the end Um, it was actually found that he had taken barbiturates that day hashish an amphetamine tablet and then to go to sleep he took nine Vesperax tablets which was 18 times the recommended dosage. So surprised that he aspirated on his own vomit. He he was unable to wake up and I think the lifestyle he was leading really shows us the toll that the music industry can take on a 27 year old and I think it was a combination of that physical exhaustion plus that mental anguish that led to his increased drug use, his increased alcoholism, and eventually his death on that day in 1970 in that hotel. So at this point we can already see some common themes and patterns emerging which takes us into our next death, which would happen just about a month later on October 4th, 1970, the infamous Janis Joplin, who died of a drug overdose, possibly heroin. So Joplin was another one of these famous rock stars who was rocketed into fame after her appearance at the Monterey Pop Festival, where she was the lead singer of the band Big Brother and the Holding Company. She would later go on to release two albums with the band and then go on to become a solo artist in her own right. She was known for having a powerful mezzo-soprano voice. She styled herself on a lot of the famous blues heroines of the day and a lot of the famous beat poets of the era. This would lead her to become one of the most widely known and most famous female vocalists of her era. However, just like Hendrix, she would suffer from alcoholism and drug addiction, in this case, a powerful addiction to heroin, which would ultimately lead to her death on October 4th, 1970. Now, like Hendrix, a lot of the factors that led to her eventual alcoholism and drug addiction can most likely be linked to her childhood experiences growing up in 1950s era Texas which probably wasn't the best place for somebody like her to grow up. She was considered an outcast. She was ostracized and bullied in high school. She became overweight and was teased. She suffered from acne. The other kids in school would routinely taunt her and call her names like pig, free, creep, and another word that I won't repeat here, but given that this is 1950s Texas, you can probably guess 
what it was based on her affinity for blues music. However, it was at her time in high school when she became friends with other outcast kids who introduced her to blues artists such as Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey. She later credited these as being influencing in her decision to become a singer in life. So you can already see that during these volatile teenage years, being bullied, being an outcast by other people, probably living in a small conservative Christian town in Texas, would probably give her some deep scars, emotional scars at least, which could lead to a life of escapism through alcohol, music, and drug addiction. Once again, it doesn't take a genius to understand that that could lead to some deep psychological trauma, especially in an age where bullying was just seen as kids being kids and one was just supposed to get over it. So in 1960, she graduates high school and goes on to attend college. And during this era, she is basically what you would call your stereotypical beatnik. Actually, the Daily Texan, it's a campus newspaper at the University of Texas at Austin, ran a profile on her in 1962 called She Dares to Be Different. Quote, she goes barefooted when she feels like it, wears Levi's to class because they're more comfortable, and carries her auto harp with her everywhere. She goes so that in case she gets the urge to break into song, it will be handy. Her name is Janis Joplin. Now, while that might sound flattering in today's world, in 1962... It probably was a shock piece. You gotta remember, this is Texas, and the whole beatnik thing was really more reminiscent of New York, San Francisco. So for somebody in Texas, a conservative area, you know, where the main focus is football and Americanism and all that awesome stuff, somebody like her would be seen as quite shocking, even on a college campus. Of course, it's at the University of Texas at Austin where she was singing with a folk trio named the Waller Creek Boys, and she actually recorded her first song at the home of a fellow University of Texas student in December 1962. That song is called What Good Could Drinking Do? So Janice wouldn't finish her studies at the University of Texas. A month after she recorded that first song, she hitchhiked to San Francisco, quote, just to get away, quote, because my head was in a much different place. Which makes a lot of sense to me because in the early 1960s in San Francisco and subsequently in New York and a little bit in Chicago was where the beatnik scene was really in full swing. So any young beatnik artist at the time would leave behind a place like Texas and naturally travel to one of these hubs of beatnik culture. Now in 1964, she had met future Jefferson Airplane guitarist Jorma Kakoen and recorded a number of blues songs. These actually featured Kakoen's wife Margarita using a typewriter in the background. It would later, after her death, be released as a bootleg album called The Typewriter Tape. And it was pretty stereotypical of what was going on in beatnik culture at the time. Now some may notice that I am using the term beatnik a lot and maybe questioning why I'm using the term beatnik to describe a major hippie icon. And that's because at this time, in the early 60s, the counterculture of the hippie movement didn't really exist yet. The hippie culture really grew out of this beat movement, which can trace its origins all the way back to the late 40s. If you're looking for a comparison, it's kind of how emo grew out of that pop-punk genre in the early 2000s. It's kind of the same idea. And if you're interested in hearing more about that, I actually have some kind of one-shot side projects planned for the future where we get into some of those discussions and topics. It's a really fun little series. So back to Joplin. Between 1963 and 1965, during the time when she's creating this so-called typewriter tape, a few things start happening in her life, major things. Well, first off, in 1963, she gets arrested in San Francisco for shoplifting, probably because she was a broke artist. And she was also developing quite the reputation as a, quote, speed freak and occasional heroin user. At this time, she starts really diving into drug use using psychoactive drugs. And... She was becoming an even heavier drinker. Her favorite 
alcoholic beverage being Southern Comfort, which personally I think Southern Comfort's disgusting, but who am I to judge? We all have our poisons. I like IPAs. Most people think they're disgusting. So my May of 65, even Joplin's friends, who are also frequent drug users, were noticing the detrimental effects from her regularly injecting methamphetamine. They described her as, quote, skeletal and, quote, emaciated, which would make sense if you're injecting methamphetamine while also using heroin and other drugs. So her friends actually threw her what was called a bus fare party, and they sent her back to her parents in Texas. Uh, She arrives in Texas in the spring, and she only weighed 88 pounds. However, being away from that culture and those people led her to change her lifestyle. She started avoiding drugs and alcohol and enrolled as an anthropology major at Lamar University. During her time at university there, she would commute to Austin to sing solo gigs. So she never truly left the music business. However, she was avoiding drugs and alcohol successfully at this time. Of course, this wouldn't last. She would eventually return to San Francisco, return to those same types of people, and she would pick up her drug use right where she left off. There is a lot to be said about the people you being around is a bigger influence on your social behavior than anything else. Generally, part of the reason why we see addicts being successful in life is because they have removed themselves from those people or those influences or that environment which made them an addict. This sadly is a case where she returned to that environment and it ultimately led to her demise. To give an idea of how bad the drug use eventually got, by 1969 it's alleged that she was shooting at least $200 worth of heroin per day. When you adjust that for inflation for 2022, that's almost $1,570 a day in heroin alone, not to mention the alcohol and any other drugs that she may have been doing at the time. Of course, when you're a rock star, you can't afford that. Now, we can't discount her quickly as being a completely lost addict. There were times even in 1969 and in 1970 when she was traveling around Brazil when she was able to successfully get off drugs. However, she would quickly get back on them, generally when she was in and around San Francisco or around those same people that were using at the time. It's very hard to be around somebody when you're an addict and you're seeing that person do the very drug that you're addicted to. It's like me with alcohol. If I see somebody drinking, I have to have a drink. Sadly, this did all result in her death on October 4th, 1970 at the Landmark Hotel. Her official cause of death would be a heroin overdose, possibly compounded by alcohol. It does make sense because she had received heroin, which was more potent than what she was used to, and it was actually indicated that other clients of this heroin dealer had died that weekend from this same potent strain of heroin. So in this instance, I think it's much as the same as the other instances. We're seeing a person who had a rough childhood, who was bullied, who had some psychological scars. She was also bisexual, and this being the 60s, she wouldn't have been able to just come out and say that, at least not publicly. She would have been even more ostracized. And considering that at this time, the beat culture had kind of degenerated. It had hardcore as a scene, and the drugs were no longer just weed and LSD. It was very hard drugs going on. A lot of people in this industry were using these hard drugs at the time. That all compounded into the death of Janis Joplin, just like we see with Hendrix, just like we see with Brian Jones. So we're obviously seeing a clear pattern here with these deaths. However, the next death we're going to discuss is a little anomalous. The official cause of death is noted as heart failure, and there doesn't seem to be any contributing factors such as hard drug use. In fact, I don't see anything in my research that suggests that he was a heroin addict or on methamphetamine or anything like that at all. It just shows alcohol dependency and some LSD use. Of course, we are talking about the late, great James Morrison, or Jim Morrison, as he's more commonly referred to. We also don't see much evidence in his story of a lot of abuse or trauma or any kind of psychological damage, much like with Brian Jones. Now, that's not to say that he probably didn't have some kind of psychological damage 
However, if he did, it was never really documented, and and it doesn't seem to really be a contributing factor in the events that we see surrounding his death. Of course, his death is a little muddied. He died in Paris, and during this time, they weren't required to do an autopsy, so no autopsy was performed, so it is a little muddled as to why he died. Most contemporary accounts do state that it was heart failure, However, there are some rumors suggesting that it could have been from heroin use. The woman he was dating at the time was a known heroin user and had later died of heroin. But we'll truly never know because we don't see any evidence of Morrison ever doing heroin. At least I've never found any in my research on his life and subsequent death. So a little bit about Jim Morrison's backstory. He was a rock star in the truest sense of the word. He had a wild personality. He was also an accomplished poet, so his lyrics were very poetic. He was known for his unpredictable and erratic performances. I mean, this is the guy who once said to a crowd, Hey, do you want to see my cock? And ended up in some legal trouble because of that. He was basically laying the early foundations of what would later become punk rock. That kind of whole attitude and style almost 15 years before it really became a thing. I believe if he had been born 10 or 15 years later, he would have been right up there with the likes of Sid Vicious and Tommy Ramone and all the later great punk rockers that came out of that movement in the 70s. He was regarded as one of the most influential frontmen in rock history, and it makes sense because he is still very influential today when it comes to rock and roll. So a little bit about Morrison's early life. He was the son of a Navy rear admiral, so he was a typical military brat. He would bounce around from place to place growing up until they eventually land in around Alameda, California, where he goes to high school. Now when Morrison was four years old, he did witness a traffic accident on a Native American reservation. That impacted him greatly. It was fairly traumatic, at least he remembers it as being traumatic. Even his father was admitted as saying that it did make a deep impression on him. He always thought about that, quote, crying Indian. He would later reference it in various poems, songs, and interviews, and said that he would exaggerate the story. However, if you're four years old, or if you're remembering something from when you were four, it probably is going to be a little exaggerated, especially if that's one of your earliest memories. Now, personally, I don't think that this incident really led to any destructive behaviors or deep psychological damage. We all have disturbing memories that we wish we could get rid of, but we don't dive into alcoholism or drug use. I think it's just one of those things that was influential in his life. I don't really think it shaped who he was as a person. It might have shaped his worldview a little bit, but I think his worldview was more shaped by his family life, his home life, and his literary influences, which would make him a great poet. Now, his home life was fairly typical of a military brat. His father was a rear admiral and probably ran a pretty tight, disciplined household. There was never any instances of corporal punishment or spanking, etc. However, just like in most other military households, when they want to install discipline in their kids, they do something that's known as dressing down. It's kind of like being chewed out, if you're familiar with that term. It basically... They yell and berate their children until they acknowledge their failings. Pretty typical of military households, and there's a lot of positive that can come out of it, as well as a lot of negative. A lot of that depends on the personality type of the recipient. Now, while Morrison did break off contact with his family after he graduated from college, it was primarily due to a couple of different reasons. For one, his dad thought that he was completely talentless when it came to music. And another was because a lot of people believe that maybe Morrison didn't want to involve his family in that aspect of the music business. He was known as a very rebellious, outgoing kind of character. And when your father's a rear admiral, probably doesn't look too good if your son is the poster child for rebellion at the time. So he probably just didn't want to involve his family in that aspect of his life. But what really shaped his personality, I think, was his influences from the stuff he read. It was said that his inspiration came from a lot of different philosophers and poets. He read Nietzsche, he read Burroughs, Kerouac, Ginsburg, 
Baudelaire, and countless others. It was even said that in his senior year, his English teacher had to have another teacher who was going to the Library of Congress check to see if the books he was actually reporting on actually existed because he thought he was making them up. They were English books on 16th and 17th century demonology that the English teacher had never heard of. So he had a wide range of influence and even some esoteric interests, all of which would be later reflected in his works as a poet and a songwriter. So after high school, he goes to UCLA and actually in 1965, he graduates with a bachelor's degree from the UCLA Film School. After this, he decides to lead a bohemian life style in Venice Beach. This is where we really start seeing him do LSD and possibly drinking more alcohol. Soon after this, he would start The Doors, which by 1967 would rocket him into fame with the song Light My Fire. And of course, by this time, he had become a very heavy drinker. He was alcohol dependent. He was showing up at recording sessions visibly inebriated. He also had a lot of live performances and studio recordings where he was either late or stoned or drunk. And at this point, the alcoholism is probably starting to take a heavy toll on his health. This leads us to that March 1st, 1969 concert in which he does scream that infamous line along with other obscenities, which led to sits a warrants for his arrest. And it led to a sham of a trial where he was sentenced to pay a $500 fine and be in prison for six months. However, he did remain free on a $50,000 bond. We have to understand that this is the puritanical South, so... Doing something like that in a concert would lead to some kind of sham of a trial. Nothing against the South. However, we do have puritanical swaths in this nation that seem to be somewhat backwards thinking and they do abuse the law. This actually did have a negative influence on his idea about the American judicial system in which he was said that he had a very unrealistic schoolboy attitude going into it and now his eyes have been opened up a bit to the actual realities of how the legal system can be abused. So after this, he takes a lengthy break from the doors. They reconvene in October 1970 to release L.A. Woman. After L.A. Woman, he announced that he was going to go to Paris with his on-again, off-again, long-term girlfriend, Pamela Corson, who later actually is the one who finds them dead in the bathtub in their apartment at 6 a.m. And while the official cause of death was listed as heart failure, again, French law didn't require an autopsy, so no autopsy was performed. Eyewitnesses do say that it was possibly from a heroin overdose. His longtime girlfriend, Pamela Corson, was a known heroin user and would actually die three years later of a heroin overdose, also at the age of 27. So a lot of people believe that at this time he was using heroin, or at least he was trying heroin, and had died of an overdose. A tragic end to such a talented artist who laid a lot of great foundations in rock and roll, and an extremely talented poet. Being a poetry lover myself, it's just so sad to see a poet of his talent die at such a young age. So what's going on? Why are all these iconic artists dying at the age of 27 in such rapid succession? It does bode to say that this was the 60s. This was the height of hippie counterculture and the drug use was a commonality amongst all these deaths. However, we also have to realize these people were all born around the same time. They were in this industry at the same time. So it would make sense that they would all die around the same time. Now, while it was commented on that it was kind of unusual that they did all die at 27, when they were reporting these in the early 70s, it wasn't really looked into. It just seemed like a, kind of a weird coincidence that was just written off. However, the subject would come up again after April 5th, 1994, after the suicide of the late, great Kurt Cobain. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into 
the life and death of Kurt Cobain or the lives and deaths of any other members of this club. I might touch on a few details and a few commonalities that link these artists and their deaths together, but if I were to go into the details of every single artist, I would be here forever. That being said, I don't want to diminish these other great artists as being less important. I just wanted to deep dive into the deaths of those first four artists, particularly because I was looking for some kind of commonalities, which we also see with many of these other artists who also die from drugs, suicide, mental illness, various other things, which might give us some insight into what's actually going on here. But it's after the death of Kurt Cobain, who also died at 27, when people start really looking into that phenomenon of why are these artists dying around that age? And given that this was the infancy of the internet era and that research was now coming available, this urban legend did start cropping up online and more inductees were found even going back before those first four all the way to the late 1890s and even continue on to this day. And when we look into this list, we see a lot of the same commonalities, along with a few other things like accidents, disease, and murder. And to show just how far this cultural phenomenon and this urban legend goes, it has led to a lot of popular artists in today's world fearing that they might actually die at 27. So naturally this kind of apophenia leads to some kind of rise of why What's the connection? And this leads us off into a string of different little theories and myths, some of which we will discuss in this segment. One being the idea of the Saturn return. There's also a modern myth called the White Lighter myth. There's also a myth of a Faustian pact, which dates back to an earlier inductee into this infamous club. The idea of a Faustian pact in the music industry is probably the longest enduring and one of my personal favorites probably because of the influence it's had on rock and roll and metal culture so naturally i'm gonna start with that one so the idea of a faustian bargain or selling your soul to the devil to become a great rock star is a very common myth that we see in rock and roll and metal and even blues it actually really starts with the blues artist Robert Johnson, who also died at the age of 27 in 1938. And if you are interested in a life shrouded in mystery and legend, Robert Johnson's story is probably the best case of that. His entire life from his birth to his death is shrouded in mystery. Most of what we know about his life was actually pieced together in the 60s and 70s by historians listening to the stories and memories from his contemporaries such as the great blues artists Sun House and Ike Zimmerman. Now Robert Johnson was musical from a very young age and even Sun House says that he remembers him as a little boy who was a competent harmonica player but a quote embarrassingly bad guitar player. He was what was called an itinerant musician which means he would bounce around from town to town, city to city. He would play on street corners in front of barbershops. He'd play in juke joints and bars and pretty much anywhere where he thought he could make a little bit of money. However, this wasn't good enough for him. He had a tremendous desire to become a great blues musician, the greatest blues musician of his time. So while he was near the Dockery Plantation, he was instructed by a friend to take his guitar to the crossroads at midnight. And at midnight, he was met there by a large black man, most likely the devil, who took the guitar and tuned it. The devil played a few songs and they returned the guitar to Johnson, which gave him the mastery of the instrument. However, this was in exchange for his soul, which the devil would come to collect when he was 27. However, this pact did lead him to become one of the greatest blues musicians of all time. And it's said that his works led to the earliest foundations we can see of rock and roll, which is why all these rock and roll stars who were later come would 
would attribute their fame and success to the devil himself. And even the man who he used to run around with, who in reality probably actually taught him how to play guitar, Isaiah Ike Zimmerman, the great blues player, he was rumored to have learned this guitar supernaturally by visiting graveyards at midnight and playing, which gave him a supernatural ability to play. So the notion of the two men who would eventually lay the foundations of what would later become rock and roll, making a Faustian pact or a pact with the devil in order to do this or learning through supernatural abilities. It's just a really fun and interesting story and it's one of rock and roll's greatest urban legends and even the circumstances surrounding his death and even where his body is buried is shrouded in mystery. There are several different conflicting stories. One story says that he was poisoned by a jealous husband for flirting with his wife. Johnson was a notorious womanizer. Witnesses to his death say that he died in a convulsive state and in extreme pain. The owner of the plantation that he was staying on stated that it was in his opinion that he had died of syphilis or other complications due to syphilis. Some of the photos we have of Johnson say that he may have had Marfan syndrome, which could have affected his health. However, it's not really known. I mean, it could have been that the devil had come to collect his debt, and it was in collecting that debt where Robert Johnson truly became more famous than he ever was in life. However, even in death, he still eludes us because nobody actually knows where he is buried. There are actually three different markers in three different cemeteries that suggest that that is his gravesite. However, most people believe that he was probably buried in a pauper's grave not too far from where he died, so we'll never actually be able to know his true cause of death simply because there is no body to exhume in order to investigate his death. Now, while the idea of selling your soul to the devil to become an amazing let's just say rock star. And while there may be some secret cabal out there that makes you sell your soul to the devil to become a rock star is an amazing story. The reality is that the quote, selling your soul to the devil was actually more of a saying in the South, which pertained to people choosing to sing secular music as opposed to the Christian music you'd hear in churches. So it's more of a cultural jab than anything. However, a lot of people like Johnson and a lot of these blues legends and subsequent rock stars and heavy metal stars and stuff adopted this because, I mean, if you're going to sing about rebellion, if you're going to be seen as rebellious amongst your peers, if you want to be seen as, you know, larger than life, then yeah, you would push that Faustian idea. Like, kind of where the phrase, we sold our souls for rock and roll comes from. In reality, it's an awesome story, and when you look at the actual origin of the phrase, you can see it links back to a cultural tie rather than something that actually happened. But then again, who am I to say it didn't happen? I mean, I wasn't hanging around that crossroads at midnight. I generally try not to hang around crossroads or cemeteries at midnight. So I have no idea what's going on out there at crossroads and cemeteries at midnight. Maybe there are, like, struggling artists and wannabe rock stars selling their souls to the devil so they can achieve fame and fortune, and then the devil comes and collects his due or his debt at the age of 27. You know, when you're 19, 20, 21, the age 27 seems like an eternity away. It's not until you hit your 30s when you really realize how young the age 27 actually is. And then when you compound the pressures of rock stardom on top of that, I mean, I couldn't have handled that in my 20s, even my late 20s. So it really is a testament to the ones who can do it. Of course, I think that Faustian myth really does discredit some of the raw talent that we do see from these artists. While a lot of these artists are considered great because of pioneering techniques or just pure raw talent itself, we do have to remember that music does evolve over time. Any great leap in evolution like that may seem supernatural, but it could just be simply because it's the next stage in the evolution of music. So to discount it as just saying, oh, the devil gave somebody special powers, does kind of almost spit in the face of that 
talent? I mean, even Nirvana, Kurt Cobain's band, they were known as very hardworking. They even say themselves that when they started out, they sucked, and that they continued to suck, but they kept playing until they became good, and people started wanting to listen to their music. It wasn't due to any supernatural deal with the devil that all of a sudden made them famous. It was pure, raw, hard work and talent. So I guess we have to ask ourselves where that myth really falls. Do some artists sell their souls in Faustian deals in order to achieve fame and fortune while others are just hardworking and achieve fame and fortune on their own? It's hard to say. I don't know. I don't work in the business and I'm not the devil. So I don't know what his opinion is. Maybe it's a mixture of both. And in that same vein of the supernatural and its influence on the music world and its influence on the deaths of these artists, it brings us to our next myth or curse. It's known as the white lighter curse or the white lighter myth. This is an urban legend that's kind of based on the 27 Club urban legend in which it's claimed that several musicians and artists died while in possession of a white lighter, leading to white lighters becoming associated with bad fortune. It's primarily based upon the deaths of Hendrix, Joplin, Morrison, and Kurt Cobain. However, this was debunked in 2017. There was an article that basically discredited the whole theory, primarily because Big didn't even start producing white disposable lighters or disposable lighters at all until around 1975. I mean, the concept didn't even come out until 1972, which is a year after Jim Morrison's death. The only artist that probably would have had a white lighter on them was probably Kurt Cobain. So that myth probably falls by the wayside very quickly. So yeah, your white lighters aren't going to cause you bad luck or create scenarios where you die in an accident at 27. The next real myth or idea that directly impacts the urban legend of the 27 Club actually comes from astrology. It's known as the Saturn Return. Basically what it is is an astrological transit that occurs when the planet Saturn makes one cycle in a person's life from the moment of their birth. Now, it's roughly 29 to 30 years. However, they say that you start to feel this transit or change around 27. It's seen as the time of reaching full adulthood, maturity. It's the idea of leaving youth behind and entering adulthood, which is kind of funny because the idea of being a rock star is to be eternally young. So I could see how that kind of idea got attached to that idea of dying at 27. And what's even more interesting is this idea is actually referenced in albums and songs that are actually entitled The Return of Saturn, Saturn's Return, Saturn Return, and others even in the film industry as well. So then there's that question, does the Saturn return make it so that these artists did remain forever young? Was it because of this return that they were disallowed a chance to go strictly into adulthood and had to be forever rebellious? Personally, I think the actual answer to that is no. When you are a rock star at that age, you are doing a job for adults. You are, as I said before, dealing with contracts, dealing with legal issues, dealing with all kinds of stuff when you're an adult. So the idea that they're forever young, however, doing the job of an adult, it's kind of insane. However, that's not too far of a leap to understand why an idea like that would be found in the music industry. So that pretty much covers some of the more supernatural myths and legends surrounding this 27 Club. And I know that there are many other artists that I didn't touch on. However, I just wanted to give a rough overview. A lot of these other artists it, do end up dying in very similar ways. Now, there were a lot of them that were murdered. They died in accidents, and they're kind of outliers. So when you focus on the core artists who are in this so-called club, you see a lot of things lining up like we found. We found histories of possible psychological damage. We found drug abuse. We found the pressures of the culture that they were in. We found the pressures of the music industry. All of these generally compounded to kill these people at such a young age. And I think part of the reason why we focus on these artists who all happen to die at this age is because it's a young age and that's going to garner more media attention. And I think the whole reason that the 27 Club exists is partly due to their fame 
and their media attention that they receive. I mean, countless 27-year-olds die every day. However, we're not putting every one of them in this club. And in the end, statistical studies have failed to find any unusual pattern of musician deaths at this age. However, it is to be noted that fame may increase the risk of death amongst musicians, but that risk is not limited to the age of 27. Unless you make Faustian pact with the devil for him to come steal your soul at the age of 27, then I think at that point you're pretty much locked in. Of course, this is just one of the urban legends that surround the music industry. The music industry has always been kind of ripe with urban legends and conspiracies. Uh, one that actually predates this one is from classical music. It's called The Curse of the Ninth. It's a superstition that believes that the Ninth Symphony is destined to be a composer's last and that composer will die or be fated to die after writing it or before completing their tenth. This kind of falls in the same vein as the 27 Club, and it really comes from a superstition that was hatched by a composer named Mahler. Previous to him, Beethoven and Schubert had both died while or just before writing their 10th symphony. Now, it's said that Mahler tried to beat this curse after writing his 8th symphony. He wrote Das Lied von der Erde, which while structurally a symphony, it was able to be disguised as a song cycle. Each movement was a setting of a poem for soloist and orchestra. He then wrote his, quote, Ninth Symphony and thought he had beaten the curse, but actually died with his Tenth Symphony incomplete. So unfortunately, he was unable to beat the curse. Other composers that have succumbed to this curse are Kurt Atterberg, Vincent Perchetti, probably said that name wrong, Roger Sessions, and Ely Siegmeister. It's famously said, everyone is afraid to do a ninth. It's a jinx that people think about even to this day. It's common in classical music to not want to do a ninth symphony kind of like how a lot of people in the thespian world won't say the name Macbeth or they won't say the words good luck I bet it falls kind of in that same kind of idea so I think it's plainly obvious to see that wherever there is a music industry we are going to see some weird phenomena and we're going to see urban legends and superstitions cropping up I mean the amount of books and media alone just referencing the 27 Club since 1995 has increased exponentially. The idea will probably be around for a long time. Of course, hopefully we won't see any other inductees anytime soon. And I think that's where we'll leave it for this episode. As always, this is Mike, and you have been listening to the season finale of Urban Legends and Conspiracies. Now, some may have noticed on this episode, I did experiment with a different format than I usually do. That's why I did create it as my season finale. It's kind of an experiment to see if I should do this format again in the future. This was an episode that is twice as long as my normal episodes, which is also why I tacked it on at the end of the season. So if you like this format, reach out to me and let know. And also if you don't like it, reach out and let know. Now this is my third actual recorded episode. I am recording it early in my recording cycle and it is about the middle of 2022 so I don't really know where you would reach out to me yet however eventually I hope to have links up somewhere where you can reach out or maybe even a discord and as always if you did enjoy this episode do me a favor and just tell a friend my podcast does grow primarily by word of mouth so any help on that front would be greatly appreciated I'll see you in the next season I also have some kind of one-shot episodes that I've been working on and another little mini-series I've been working on. So I might release some of that in the interim between the seasons. So be sure to check that out. And as always, thank you for listening.